Exodus chapter 7. We'll read the miracle of the, or the narrative of the first plague, and then we'll talk about all of the plagues. Exodus 7, beginning in verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him. And the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand, and you shall say to him, Yahweh, God of the Hebrews, has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die, the river shall stink, and the Egyptians shall loathe to drink the water of the river. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their streams, over their rivers, over their ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in wood and stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died, the river stank, and the Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments, and Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went into his house, neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. Let's pray. Father, help us to understand your judgments. We know that when your judgments are in the earth, the inhabitants of the world learn righteousness. Father, from our perspective here, our limited temporal perspective, we certainly see what looks an awful lot like a number of major judgments lining up in the distance, ready to descend upon us. Father, help us to understand why you plagued Egypt, what you were teaching them, and help us to learn the lessons that Pharaoh should have learned, to learn the lessons that your people should have learned. Father, we pray that you would help me to speak accurately about these things in order to help your people prepare and understand, prepare for and understand your judgments. We thank you for the greatest judgment of all at the cross. In the name of the one who suffered there, we pray. Amen. Well, these ten plagues are the great school of the power of God. They teach us God's care for His people. As we already saw, His special providence for the church. That's a major lesson of the ten plagues. 
They get into the question of the problem of evil. Why did Pharaoh's heart have to be hard? Why did he have to persecute Egypt or Israel? Why couldn't he just let Israel go? And the plagues teach us that somehow, in some respect, a world with evil pharaohs glorifies God more than a world without evil pharaohs. How? We don't know. The problem of evil has never been solved and probably cannot be solved by the human intellect. But the plagues teach us God's care for His church. They teach us God's involvement and protection even in the midst of great evil. There are also a number of key verses, five key verses throughout the account that contain purpose statements where God says, I'm plaguing you and here's why. Obviously, the overall purpose of every plague is to get Pharaoh to let Israel go. But subsidiary to that overall purpose of God, freedom of God's people from tyranny for worship lie these other purposes. To show God's identity, his location, his uniqueness, his ownership of the earth, his discrimination between Egypt and his people. The plagues clarify who God is, where he is, and how powerful he is on behalf of his people. If we read the plague stories rightly, we understand more about who God is, where he is, and how powerful he is on our behalf. What is the nature of these things? Well, some, uh, some commentators, rightly, in, in one sense, question the term plagues. If you see that God doesn't actually describe these as plagues, instead they're described as strikes. Right? Verse 25, seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. And almost all of the plagues are described in the text as a strike or a blow aimed at Egypt. Now we call them plagues because that's been their popular name in English for many centuries. And if I talked about the ten strikes of Egypt, you all would think of some kind of umpire who let the guy strike out way too many times. These are ten plagues, ten strikes, Ten blows struck against Egypt. Now, starting in the 18th century, rationalist critics, of course, have paid attention to this part of the Bible, as to almost every other part, and they've reconstructed the narrative in terms that they understand. Something like this. Well, Moses and Aaron decided that it was time to free their people. They waited until heavy rains in the Ethiopian highlands had washed a lot of red silt into the river. They knew this was coming downstream. So they picked the day when it was going to arrive to confront Pharaoh and tell him, let my people go or the water will turn into blood. Pharaoh says, no, the red silt arrives. They point to the river and say, blood. Pharaoh, listen to us. 
right? The Egyptians, that's why they dug around the river. They knew that this happens all the time. Red silt comes down. Don't drink the water because when the red silt comes, the frogs can't stand it. They get out of the water. They come up on the shore. And then the frogs carry anthrax. They die and lice and flies breed on their carcasses. Then the animals pick up the anthrax and they die. And that causes, of course, all the dead bodies rotting in the sun produce more infections, the boils on man and beast that we know as the sixth plague. This unfortunate series of events, fortunate from Moses' perspective, unfortunate from Pharaoh's, is interspersed with a really bad hailstorm or two, an arrival of locusts, and a really terrible sandstorm. A darkness that could be felt for three days. Well, that was a sandstorm. Rather like the one in which the Ever Given allegedly ran aground six weeks ago. So the rationalists tell us, no need to invoke God Almighty to explain any of the plagues except the last. Otherwise, it's a series of natural events, bad events, sure. But unprecedented? Hardly. Many countries have had much worse luck a number of years in a row. One need only look at, for example, Iraq in the first Gulf War. Saddam was stuck. He had a bunch of soldiers to demobilize after making peace with Iran. There, Iraq had a terrible economy. There were no jobs to put these soldiers into. So Saddam had a brilliant idea. I'll just march into Kuwait and take some of their money. Unfortunately, he provoked the wrath of the wrong people by doing that, right? But Iraq just fell afoul of bad luck. And so did Egypt. So say not only the rationalist critics of the past 300 years, but of course, Pharaoh and the Egyptian bureaucracy, that was the party line there as well. Now, the magicians give up. They tap out by the end of the third plague. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh never says, you're right, Moses. Your God is more powerful than I am. Pharaoh prefers to believe in the rationalist reconstruction. Now, what can we say about the rationalist view? Well, in one sense, all of the plagues are natural events. But in another sense, all of the plagues are supernatural events. Frogs are normal creatures. So are lice and flies. So are boils on man and beast. So is hail. So are locusts. So is, well, possibly darkness. It gets dark every night though it's never dark for three days at a time. Only the first and last plague are definitely supernatural in that water never naturally becomes blood. Nor do the firstborn and the firstborn only die. There is no natural explanation for the death of the firstborn 
nor a natural explanation for water turning into blood. Right? The miracle is not red silt washing down from Ethiopia. Now why are the plagues this way? Why are the plagues natural enough that both a modern day rationalist and a Bronze Age pharaoh can look at them and say, I don't need Yahweh to explain this. This is just bad luck. This is just a series of unfortunate events. Why didn't God send more nakedly supernatural things? Climate change. Egypt is frozen in winter while the Mediterranean lands around it are still sunbaked and warm. Explain that one, Pharaoh. Angels with drawn swords. God does send the angel of death in chapter 11. The answer, as I see it, is what Pascal said 400 years ago, there is enough light for those who wish to see and enough darkness for those who wish not to see. God reveals himself in the plagues. And he reveals himself to the eyes of faith unequivocally. This is the finger of God even Pharaoh's court magicians could see that. And yet the revelation is never overt enough that every knee bows and every tongue confesses. God leaves enough space for his creatures to say, that's not divine. Purely natural, my friend. Moses Go home and take a nap. Calm down. How can the Almighty be restrained enough in His revelation to not overwhelm us? How can He give the creature genuine freedom to harden its heart against Him? We don't know. Nor do the plagues even try to answer those questions. They simply tell us about a time when God revealed Himself in ten strikes against Egypt, ten mighty blows in which he contested with Pharaoh for supremacy over his people. God won. But Pharaoh put up a good fight. God is showing us our need to submit. Don't be Pharaoh. Maybe the easiest, most obvious lesson of the ten plagues. That's the character not to imitate. That's the one not to model yourself on. If God tells you to do something, don't harden your heart and say, I won't. I'm going to do what I want to do. So there, Lord. That's what Pharaoh said. What other specific lessons did God want to teach? Well, the first one, the lesson of the first plague... And really the lesson of all the plagues is once again the identity of God. This is a major theme throughout Exodus. The knowledge of God. Who is the Lord? I am who I am, he told Moses. Over and over we've seen him tell Moses, I am Yahweh. Therefore, 
I'm bigger than your problems. Therefore, I will deliver you. Therefore, the problem of evil is not your biggest problem. Whether you're obeying me is your biggest problem. And God is determined to teach Pharaoh that too. Chapter 7, verse 17. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river. God is teaching Egypt. He's teaching Pharaoh. And he's teaching his people who he is. He is the God who strikes. The God whose providence specially extends to his church and who will do what it takes to free us from tyrants who demand our service and instead free us to serve Him. God tells us to serve Him and He makes that possible for us. He gives us the external, yes, political freedom that we need to do it. One of the lessons of the book of Exodus. What he requires of us in order to gain that freedom is that we serve him. Let my people go that they may serve me. Also, notice, right, Pharaoh has no name. Other pharaohs are named in the Bible. It's not that Moses was ignorant and he didn't know the name of the pharaoh he was fighting with. He deliberately chooses not to write his name anywhere in this book, anywhere in the Bible. By this you'll know that I am Yahweh. I'll tell you my name. Your name is irrelevant, Pharaoh. Pharaoh is in some sense a cipher, a stand-in for the human heart giving free reign to its rebellion against God. You want to see what hard-heartedness looks like? Turn to Exodus 7-11. to And read about plague after plague after plague after plague, ten in a row, after all of which Pharaoh's heart was hardened. As I understand it, you're not allowed to just walk into the jail and speak to a prisoner unless the prisoner requests you to come in and talk. But I dare say that in many cases, even here in our own local jail, you could go in and if you could extract the story from the person of why they're there, you might hear something very similar to these plagues. Told, of course, from the rationalist point of view, I had bad luck. Then I had more. Then I had more. And then it compounded itself to which you want to say, well, why didn't you repent? Why didn't you turn around? Why did you keep doing the things They continue to bring the strikes of God down on your head. And Pharaoh's answer, the prisoner's answer is always not my fault. It was a string of bad luck. The frogs were carrying anthrax and that got into the livestock and then the livestock died. Had nothing to do with hardening my heart against God. Why are you on the outs with your wife? Why are you hiding that sin in your life? Bad luck. Not my fault. Not the result of anything I'm doing. Just the result of, well, 
unfortunate events. The plagues show us the identity of God. That he is a God who does stand against wicked behavior, whether at the lowest level or at the highest level. Egypt was the most powerful kingdom in the Mediterranean world at this time, maybe in the entire world at this time. And God plagues it. God is more powerful than Pharaoh and says, Pharaoh, you are going to learn who I am. I'm a God with power, the power to turn water into blood. The power to send boils, hail, frogs, lice, flies at the exact wrong time. The God who stands against your hard heart, that's who I am. And chapter 8 contains another purpose statement which comes in the middle of the plague of flies, 8.22. In that day, God says, I will set apart the land of Goshen in which my people dwell, that no swarms of flies shall be there, in order that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the land. God is going to show us where he is. Not just who he is, but that he is local. He's right here in the land with you. He's not an absentee deity, not a distant landlord far away. And he's local, he knows what's going on, he's right there in the land. The lesson of suffering. Sometimes when we're suffering we want to say, God, where are you? What's God's answer? I'm right there with you. I sent this on your head because you needed it. It's not a fun lesson to hear. But it's the lesson of the plagues. Chapter 9, seventh plague, the plague of hail. God says to Pharaoh, verse 14, At this time I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. What do the plagues show? The incomparability of God. There is no one like Him. We can imagine Pharaoh coming back from the Red Sea, the lone survivor, and announcing to Egypt, okay, that Yahweh is something else. I think it's time to put another God in the pantheon. We have Ra and Knet and Seth and all the rest of them. Let's add Yahweh. Right, would Pharaoh have taken away the right lesson from the plagues? No, because the lesson is that there is no one like God. God is in a different class than the deities of polytheistic idolatry. God is not a deity who is simply greater in degree than a human being. God is a deity who is greater in kind. There is none like Him in all the earth. And he owns the earth. Chapter 9, verse 29. Still in the plague of hail. Moses said to Pharaoh, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord, and the thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. I will show you that this earth belongs to God. One of the things, one of the lessons 
of the plagues. Why can God turn the water into blood? Well, that's not Egypt's river, that's God's river. Why can God take the firstborn? They're not Egypt's firstborn, they're God's. They belong to Him. Why can God send all these strikes, smite Egypt in so many ways? Why does He have the right to send suffering into our life? Because the earth is His. The earth is the Lord's. Pharaoh may have thought that the land belonged to him, especially after Joseph's uh, successful famine era relief package back in Genesis, had successfully transferred ownership of all land in Egypt to Pharaoh. There were no more private landowners in Egypt. God says, Pharaoh, you think you own the land. I own the land. And I want you to learn that from these plagues. God's tough providences in our lives should make it abundantly clear that we, our families, our goods, our chattels, our real property, don't belong to us. They belong to God. The final lesson of the plagues is God's discrimination between Egypt and His people. Chapter 11, verse 7, in the warning about the final plague. Moses announces, Against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue, against man or beast, that you may know that the Lord does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. God does make a difference. Discrimination is illegal in our country, but God discriminates on the basis of religious creed. Those who fear Him, He protects and saves. Those who don't, He stands against. God makes a distinction between His people and those who are not His people. That's the difference, ultimately, between life and death, freedom and slavery, heaven and hell. That's a difference that God sets between us and those who are not His people. Why did Egypt get hit so hard? They were being warned that the path they were on was the path toward death. Don't go this way, Pharaoh. There was an evangelistic thrust in these ten strikes. God gave Pharaoh the active energy to make his heart resolved in disobedience to God. You could translate it a hard heart, as most translations do, but probably a better translation is a resolute heart. A heart with its mind made up. Pharaoh is resolved. I will not bow to Yahweh. I will not knuckle under, give in, do what he tells me to do. In chapter 9, God addresses why he hardens Pharaoh's heart. Indeed, for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. This purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So what are God's 
two purposes, to show his power, to magnify his name. Why is Pharaoh so resolved not to let God's people go? Because God wants to show his power. Now we would say, God, if you had power, you would show that power by snapping your fingers, changing Pharaoh's heart, so that the first time Moses comes in and says, let my people go, Pharaoh says, okay. Right, and Moses says, that's it. I argued about this with God at the burning bush for so long in order to hear you say, okay. And Pharaoh says, sure, you can have them. Has his bureaucrats prepare the decree and signs it right in front of Moses and hands it over. No plagues. No extra work. God just, you know, lets the people go. What if the story ran that way? How would we see the power of God? Does God have the power to do it that way? Of course. Yes, he does. Why does he choose to do it this way? And the answer has to be that God's power is so powerful that he shows it by restraining it. He shows his power to dial it back. To notch it down. The contest between God and Pharaoh was not an even match. And you can think of your least favorite team in the NFL. Maybe the Detroit Lions or one of the, I don't know who's low in the rankings. And then you can put them up against the Thunder Basin Bolts. And you can ask yourself, would that be a fun game to watch? And what's the difference in power between a high school boys football team and an NFL team? Well, we would consider that to be absolutely catastrophically different in power. And yet, of course, two human football teams are a lot closer in power than God and Pharaoh ever thought about being. That's the power of God that he can come down and play at Pharaoh's level. He doesn't steamroll Pharaoh in the first act, in the first sentence, change Pharaoh's mind for him, force Pharaoh to let the people go, right? Hypnotize him or enchant him or something like that. God rolls up his sleeve just a single turn. Doesn't bare his arm to the elbow. Maybe just unbuttons his cuff. One turn and fights with Pharaoh over his people. In order to show his power, he showed his power to control his power. His power to moderate his power. His power to make himself only the bare minimum stronger than Pharaoh. Yeah, you do have to hand it to Pharaoh. The one thing he does not do in this series is whine. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say, Moses, this isn't fair. Moses, what you're doing isn't keeping the rules. You're forcing me to do something I don't want to do. Pharaoh at least gives God the credit of recognizing that God 
has come down to his level to play ball with him in one sense, even on Pharaoh's terms. That's a lesson of judgment. For this purpose I have raised you up that I may show my power in you. Right, if you're flying along in your little two-seater Cessna and you hear that an F-14 has been dispatched to shoot you down, you can laugh because you know that the F-14 can't go 105 miles an hour. It's too fast to catch your little plane. By the time it sees you, it's already two miles ahead. That's not God. God is not too powerful to deal with Pharaoh or with the hard heart of any human person. So if you're experiencing judgment, say to yourself, how do I see the power of God here? But I would suggest that in most cases, we shouldn't look for the earth-shaking, cosmos-destroying power of God We shouldn't look for the sun to belch out a piece of fire larger than the earth and just crisp us all. We should look for a much more moderate judgment. The slightest breeze from the breath of God, not the thunder of His power. That's what these ten plagues are. The edges of His ways. That's why the magicians don't say the hand of God, as older commentators recognized, it wasn't even his hand. This is the finger of God. This is the little finger of God. And so, was God successful in showing his power in Pharaoh? Has his name been declared in all the earth? Absolutely. People who have never had their passport stamped in Cairo, who have never sailed down the Suez Canal, Today, know the name of Egypt and what God did there. There are countries in North Africa that we've never even heard of, like Mauritania. What's that? But everyone knows the name of Egypt because there, God exalted His name by moderating His power to the point where He fought a fair fight with Pharaoh. God wanted his name known, so he took on Pharaoh with the ten plagues so that he could take his people from slavery to worship through the knowledge of himself. Right, the biggest lesson of the plagues is that God intervenes on behalf of his church. Maybe the second biggest lesson of the plagues is that God does that in the gentlest way possible. that he very rarely obliterates the opposition. He could have, right? He says that. Exodus 9.15, If I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But I didn't do that. Because for this purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you. He showed his power 
to moderate his power. That's the lesson of the plagues. Let's pray. Father, help us to know you, to worship you, and to fear your strikes. We thank you that you moderated your power to the point where you could take on Pharaoh and contest the service of your people with him. Father, we pray that you would continue to stand against every state power, every political, economic, or cultural entity that demands the service of your people. And we ask that you would help us to be dedicated to serving you and to you refuse service to those other things that claim the spot of God in our lives. Lord, we thank you for your work, showing your power, making your name known in the life and activity of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. When your judgments come, teach us to submit. Soften our hearts. Make us resolved not in disobedience, but resolved in obedience. Resolved to back down and to repent as soon as your word comes to us and says, stop it. Repent. Father, we hate our sin. Help us to turn from it. We confess our sin. Cleanse us from it. Don't let us become pharaohs who hang on to our sin at the cost of ruining Egypt or whatever our domain might be. Don't let us be rationalists who explain your judgments as so much bad luck. Help us, Father, to see that you moderate your power in order to call us to repent, to come back to you, to be your people who serve you on your terms. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen.